I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. talking to someone after the prayer meeting yesterday morning, encouraging them. They were saying they were going to be at the mall, but they wouldn't uh, be singing. And I was encouraging them, well, you could, you know, you should participate. And they were downplaying their singing abilities and so on. But in Northern Ireland, as some of you may know, we have, during the summer period, a lot of what we call bands. Uh, they can be brass bands and pipe bands and flute bands and all the sort of different kinds of bands that you have, and it's all part of celebrating and remembering the Glorious Revolution and William of Orange and the Battle of the Boyne and so on. I'm not get into the history there, but every year they do this, and usually somewhere around Easter Monday from then to the end of August, there are parades going on all over the country. Of course, these bands want to look like you know, there's lots of people involved, and they, they try to encourage as many people. Each band wants to have the ranks filled and make it look as full as possible. And sometimes, of course, you get those who come along and they haven't quite, well, they haven't really learned to play the flute or to play whatever else they're meant to be playing. And you would call them dummy fluters because they would march and they would have the flute, and they'd walk, and they'd move their fingers and so on, but they aren't really blowing into the instrument <laughs> and, and, uh, because they haven't learned. So sometimes in a choir, you could be a dummy fluter, and you could stand there, and you could sing along, maybe not making too much of a noise so that you don't put others off, but it bolsters the ranks, and it looks as if at least uh, there's more participation and involvement. You can hide behind the gifts of others, and let them shine while you just support them uh, in your presence. So maybe you might have, Dr. Overly, some dummy fluters arrive on Saturday. I don't think you'll turn them away if they appear, but we encourage you all to participate and be there, and uh, I trust the Lord will use it and glorify His name. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we've been in this epistle through this year, we're coming near to the end of the year and to the end of the epistle. <clears throat> and uh, trusting the Lord will give us help as we close. There will be one message to follow. I'm not sure if I'll deliver it next Lord's Day or not. I'm not here. I'm in Columbia on the last Lord's Day of the month, so I'll not be here on the 29th to preach. And I would like to be finished by the end of the year so that we can consider other things as we come to the beginning of the new year. So I may indeed finish up next Lord's Day morning, but uh, I trust the Lord will apply His Word and help us. We're coming to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll read from verse 16. We considered verses 12 through 15 last Lord's Day. and Let's read from verse 16. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 
Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. We'll end our reading there at verse 24. Let's still our hearts for prayer. Our God, we are thankful for the blessing of being here and we pray that the faithful will always come to sing the praises of the Lord Jesus, that we will always gather to lift our hearts and our voices and cause them to ascend to heaven in praise for the God who has redeemed us by the precious blood of His Son. Lord, as we consider Thy Word, we pray for help. We all need help when we come to the Scriptures. We are naturally dull. And, Lord, even the preacher, no amount of study and commentaries can cause us to truly know the... to have the insight that we really need for a given time. We need... Not a sermon, we need a message. I pray for a message from the Lord for every heart. And I pray that Thou wilt just lead us and guide us through this passage and give the help that we need so that each soul that knows Christ is fed and nourished on the Word of God. So condescend and give much of the Spirit upon preacher and hearer. And may it please Thee to advance Thy kingdom in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. Every church has its trials. The Holy Spirit's summary of the Apostle's message to the churches as he returned on his first missionary journey, as Paul came back and dealt with the churches that had been planted, the summary given of his message in Acts 14.22 is, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. That's the summary. I've pointed that out a number of times already because it's very applicable to the church that we've been considering and the epistle written to those that were in Thessalonica. They had their trials, their tribulations, their difficulties. And summarized in the apostles' message to young churches is the fact that this would be their experience. And we are not exempt from the same. Every church has, excuse me, Every church has its trials. Individually, some of you have come here and you have your trials. You come in this morning and you have cares that are weighing upon you, concerns that you are going through and come right to your mind even now. And the collective body has them as well. There's no avoiding it. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, Ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. You partake in something of the suffering of Christ because you are the body of Christ. The body of Christ suffered the agonies that were experienced leading up to the cross and the cross itself. God's people go through something of those sufferings 
and their own experience, appointed by God for his own purposes and always for our good. And since suffering is part of life, dealing with suffering is a crucial aspect of Christian living. How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to get through it? When we don't handle sufferings aright, it's always a worship problem on a number of levels. We make idols of how life ought to be. And as is the case with all forms of idolatry, it is a danger to our souls. When we lift up and when we think to ourselves, this is how it should be, we make an idol. And it's dangerous, very dangerous, to sit at the feet of that idol and to lose a sense of our vision being upon Christ and His sovereign will and what He has for each of His people. It is only at the feet of Christ that we can glorify God in our trials. It's at the feet of Christ where we fall in humble adoration to Him who loves us and cares for us and it doesn't matter what goes on, we know that He does all things well. We sit there and we worship in spite of the turmoil. As Paul brings his epistle to a close, he focuses on life in the church, facing all the hostility of the world and the troubles that inevitably arise. The church needed guidance, needed help. How were they going to respond to the trials and tribulations? We've we've already dealt with some of them. Some of them are internal. Their struggle over natural feelings relating to those that have passed away, the sorrow that gripped their hearts trying to deal with that, well, the apostle helps to alleviate that with the truth of the gospel. But there are these trials that constantly arise within and without, pressures that come against the people of God, against the church, and if we don't respond the way the Lord would have us to respond, it's always a worship problem. Idolatry is going on, our hearts are misguided either through misinstruction or through the the vain imaginations of our own hearts. Last week we looked at that which relates to peace in the body of Christ, those that are helpers of the peace and the need to maintain that peace within the body of Christ, very important aspect, especially dealing with hostility and all of the trials and difficulties of life, but The advice from the Apostle continues, and we come to verses 16 through 24. And while last week we considered a gospel church as a church at peace, this morning we consider a gospel church as a church-making progress. A gospel church is a church-making progress. And a number of things I want us to note here in these verses. There's a lot here. But a little like Paul, who didn't expound on all of these and, and kind of As I said last week, he's putting them out there as reminders to things he no doubt had instructed them in in the past. I'm doing something similar. I'm not going to develop these all to the degree that possibly I could, but I trust that what will be said will be sufficient, and the Lord will apply his word. First, we consider the exercises that make for progress. The exercises that make for progress. Verse 16 through 18. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks. These three exhortations go together. They're all pulled in by the Apostle Paul 
carefully because they're linked. And to see the connection is a very important aspect of this. I mean, you could just look at verse 16 and I could drive home the importance of rejoicing in the life of the believer. We could have a whole message just on that. Or we could look at prayer and just drive home the point of prayer that the Apostle Paul is evidently seeking to lay before them and and look at it in an individual aspect and look at the aspect of prayer in the life of the believer or the life of the church. Or in giving thanks, just dealing with thanksgiving. That's a subject in and of itself that could be handled independently. But they all are pulled together. Many of you will be familiar with Philippians chapter 4. And there you find the same things being pulled into close proximity, maybe with a little more development in what he says there, but the same thing is being said. uh, Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Is that not verse 16? And then in verse 6 of Philippians 4, he says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. In Philippians 4, he pulls the same truths together. The same exhortations that must be grasped, all pulled together in the same context, that you're not to divide the rejoicing part from the praying And that from the thanksgiving, they all go hand in hand. And this is the answer when we're dealing with the threats of trials and difficulties in our lives. Trials have the tendency to cause us to be anxious, to be concerned, to be worried. And the path to come, beloved, regardless of the circumstances, is found in the exhortations here in our text. As I say, Philippians 4 develops it more and brings more light on that aspect of, of anxiety and concern when he says, be careful for nothing, be anxious for nothing, don't allow your heart to be led astray with, with cares and concerns. But he drives home rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. And and that's what Paul is doing here as well. The same thing, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And the context is God's people going through trial, going through tribulation, going through difficulty, and needing to respond the right way. And Paul's advice, in order that they might progress in spite of those things that would threaten to hinder them and cause them to stumble is the advice given in these exhortations. How do you rejoice evermore? I mean, it almost seems insensitive for Paul to say this. The immediate response, of course, to someone who says rejoice, I mean, just just put yourself in a position where you're going through the greatest trial you've ever gone through, and the response of a believer is rejoice evermore. I mean, your immediate response is, Hang on a minute. Let me let you into what's going on. Help, let me help you understand exactly what I'm going through. That is the natural response to enlighten the mind that seems to make light of the trials that we're going through. But Paul is completely aware, very much aware of the trials and the difficulties and the struggles of the people of God. This is a man who was told from the day of his conversion that his life would be a life of trials and struggles and difficulty. He knows what it's like for life to be tough. 
And his counsel is rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. How do you rejoice evermore, Paul? How? Pray without ceasing. If you leave out that, you will not be able to rejoice evermore. It will be impossible for you. You will spend time at the feet of your circumstances. You'll spend time gazing upon the trial, upon the trouble, upon the experiences. You'll spend your time there and your gaze will be filled with all the horror of what is going on or what might be about to take place. And you will be crippled. Joy will not flow from your heart there. Anxiety will. Worry. Despair. Hopelessness. So in the midst of trial, what do you do? How do you obey such an exhortation? You pray without ceasing. You pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Well, what do I pray about? How can I pray when this is going on, when that is going on, when I'm facing this trial and this this struggle? How do I pray? In everything, give thanks. And everything, give thanks. You're struggling to know what to pray about, what to bring before God. In everything, give thanks. Get before God and give thanks and keep giving thanks. That is a form of prayer. You keep giving thanks, you're praying without ceasing. And as you give thanks and you pray without ceasing in that way, then you will inevitably rejoice evermore. You can't divide them, beloved. If you're weighed down with anxiety, there is no one solution to it. And there's no quick fix that man can develop. But the apostolic counsel is given in these three exhortations, all linked together, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And maybe it's more easy to see the link as we work it backwards, giving thanks. That's where I need to begin. I need to see what I can give thanks for. To gaze upon what God has done for me. That leads me into prayer and I keep praying, giving thanks. And then I begin to rejoice over the things that I have. When we are downcast and struggling, it's not just maybe even getting down before the Lord to pray, to give thanks. Sometimes we need to pray until we give thanks. We're so far away from being able to give thanks that we just need to get before the Lord and wait there until thanksgiving comes from our hearts. There is nothing in the body of Christ that that helps them progress as much as this. There's nothing that they can do, nothing that any of us can do that will help us progress more than giving ourselves to these exhortations. In fact, you could just write beside these exhortations, here is how I progress in the Christian life. Oh, I know there are other aspects of progress, and we think of all the material things, and our minds are drawn so easily to those things. I want to progress materially. I want to progress in, in life. 
and employment and status and these things, but these things are not so important. To progress in the Christian life, here are the exhortations. Here's the apostolic counsel to a church in difficulty and trial, going through tribulation. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Seems so simple. But there's something going on here that's profound in its influence upon our hearts. When we do this, this helps us recognize who God is, where God is, and who we are, and where we are. It rids out of our hearts the idolatry that lends itself to complaining, because that's idolatry. It's the pride of heart that thinks we have warrant to complain, to, to, to bring accusations against God. And let me just clarify, I'm not saying we can't sometimes pray with a sense of complaint. What I mean by that is sometimes our prayers take on the forms of complaint. In other words, we're bringing our cares to God, and someone might hear those, those prayers and, and discern a sense of complaint in them. As I read the Psalms, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not so much complaining against the sovereignty of God as it is bringing the cares of our hearts before a sovereign God. That is warranted. But when we come before the Lord and we rejoice evermore and we pray, recognizing, therefore, that He is sovereign, and that's what prayer recognizes fundamentally, the reason I pray is because God is sovereign and I am not. And when I give thanks, it is because I understand He is in control. The one who loves me is governing all the affairs of my life, therefore I give thanks. Oh, beloved, these are the exercises that make for progress. Make sure you note it. This is coming from Paul. If he was here, he would give no other exhortations. This is what he would leave with us. Secondly, the evidences that indicate progress. The evidences that indicate progress. Verse 19. We'll just skip the little phrase at the end of verse 18. We'll come back to that. But in verse 19 through verse 22, quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. These are the evidences that indicate progress. Quench not the Spirit. The word quench is sometimes used in relation to a literal fire, as in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. They are quenched. But it's also used metaphorically, as it is here. That is to say, don't suppress or stifle the Spirit of God. Don't suppress the Spirit, the working of the Spirit. Now, we'll tie all this together in a moment. Let's go to verse 20. Despise not prophesyings. What's this relating to? Regard, don't regard as nothing prophesying. Don't see it as empty or, or pointless. Don't despise it. Now, what is this prophesying? That's the question that we ask, and there are two general views. One views it as the plain preaching and exposition of the Scriptures and their application. The other views it as the gift that enables one to reveal truth not found in the Scripture. John Calvin says, by the term prophecy, however, I do not understand the gift of foretelling the future. He goes on to say, let therefore prophecy in this passage be understood as meaning interpretation made suitable to present use. Taking the Word, 
explaining the word and applying the word to the present need of the hour. Now, that may be the case. Of course, some will argue against it. And they will say, no, this is relating to the gift for telling the future insight that is not related to Scripture directly. And if that is true, then it would correlate with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us is that prophesying and other gifts will come to an end in this age. I don't have time to expound it, but if you can take just a few very brief notes in relation to 1 Corinthians 13. I want to help you just understand what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, it's a chapter on love, but then this matter of the gifts comes in in verse 8. You have prophecies, you have tongues, you have knowledge. These things will fail, cease, vanish away. And the question always is, well, when? When does this all take place? But again, what is the focus? First of all, note this from this passage. Paul is making a point that graces are superior to gifts. Graces is the point. Here's a church led up by the desire for gifts, focusing on gifts, not showing much grace. But he is trying to flip their perspective as to what is most important and show them that the graces are far better than gifts. That's, that's first. That's, that's relevant to this chapter. And these graces, secondly, are better because they abide. The gifts don't. The gifts will cease. You can see that. Verse 8. The prophecies, tongues, knowledge, they're going to cease Verse 13, faith, hope, and charity, these three, these abide, these are here. Now, consequently, here's the thing to note. Since faith and hope will cease once we are in heaven, there's no need for faith anymore because it's given way to sight, and the hope has come to fruition, since they must cease once we're in heaven, and since the gifts spoken of cease before the graces cease, then the gifts must cease sometime in this age. That's the logic of the passage. They have to. And that's why charity is the greatest, because it never ceases. It will extend and be relevant in eternity. Hope and faith will make way for sight and the fulfillment of all things. They will cease in glory. Therefore, therefore, The ceasing of the gifts must happen prior to the ceasing of these graces. And since they cease in heaven, therefore, the vanishing away of these gifts cannot be when we go to heaven. Furthermore, even the the language that's used doesn't indicate that they will vanish away in a kind of, uh, in 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 an immediate sense, it will be a, a petering out, a are going away over time, which is exactly what we find in church history. And so even if Paul was dealing with prophesyings in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if that's what he's dealing with, well, it's, it's not something that we are dealing with today. But again, many understand this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, like Calvin understood it, not to be relating to that gift, but relating to the actual business of bringing the Word of God and applying that Word to the season and to the hour. One might simply ask, even what is the need for prophecy now? John Owen says, if private revelations agree with Scripture, 
they are needless. And if they disagree, they are false. Then the other question would be, if, if they neither agree nor disagree, how can they be tested? Because they must be tested by the Word of God. And then we come to verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. That is to say, test what you're taught. If it is found to be scriptural, take it on board. Hold fast to that which is good, that which is scriptural. John warns us of this very thing as well, this important aspect of proving or testing what we hear. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try or test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Sometimes quoted as a catch-all so that you avoid all forms of sin, but in context it's dealing with, again, relating to the judgment, the discerning of what you're hearing. And once you hear something that is good, you, you hold fast to that. If you hear something that's not, then you abstain from it. If you're being taught something that would lead you astray, you do your testing and then you abstain, you remove yourself from the appearance of evil, the instruction that would lead you astray. So, these are evidences that indicate progress. How do you see a Christian as making progress? Well, it's not just giving themselves to the exercises of verses 16, 17, and 18, but it is by the cycle of the Christian life in verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. There's a cycle here. Listen, look at the text. Look, look at verses 19 through 22 and listen. You're to live and worship in holiness of life, walking in the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. There you are. You're not to quench the Spirit. You're to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, follow the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit. To help you to do that, don't despise the teaching you receive. Verse 20. But also test what you hear and put away that which would quench the Spirit. The very appearance of evil. What would quench the Spirit? And so you go back and there's a cycle there. Walk in the Spirit. To help you do that, you need instruction. You test that instruction. And you take what's good because it helps you walk in the Spirit. You remove what is wrong because it would lead you away and quench the Spirit. And you see the cycle of the Christian life. And this, beloved, these, these are evidences that indicate progress. When you see a Christian walking in this way, living in this fashion, it evidences progress in their life. It's, it's a mark of maturity. They are sensitive to the Spirit. They don't want to grieve the Holy Ghost. They bring their life under the light of Scripture. They want to constantly be living for the glory of God. And so they receive teaching to help them. And if anything would lead them astray, they cast it out because they're afraid of quenching the Spirit and not walking and pleasing Him. Thirdly then, the expressions that show there should be progress. The expressions that show there should be progress. There's two expressions given. One is at the end of verse 18. The other is verses 23 and 24. You have first then the didactic expression, verse 18. The didactic expression. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Paul texts the admonitions that precede this Rejoicing, praying, and everything give thanks. These are the exercises that you're to engage in. And this, these exercises, 
giving yourself to them, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is what the Lord calls you to do. And by reason of your union with Christ, you are to do this. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. God looks at you as in Christ. I want you to note that. I want you to see that. I want you to grasp that. Because as God gives his instruction to his people, it is not with them independent from Christ. He looks at them as they are in Christ and gives them instruction on the basis of how they are viewed in Christ. If that was not the case, such instruction would not come to us. What's the point in someone who's not in union with Christ rejoicing evermore? As they stand in their sin, in the misery of their unbelief, with the wrath of God abiding upon their head, there is no instruction to rejoice evermore to such a person. If you're, if you're under the wrath of God, there is no instruction to rejoice. There is the solemn reality that you are to feel and understand that you're, you're lost. That if you die and you perish in your sin, you'll be lost forever. So this is instruction that you get because you're in union with Christ. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Because you're in union with the Son of God, you're given this instruction, rejoice evermore. It was quoted by Dr. Overley, who for the joy that was set before him, Christ, Christ could enter into the redemptive plan of the Father and go to the cross and he could do it with joy. He was a anointed with joy above his fellows. No one was more joyful than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rejoicing evermore, even in the midst of his trials. And this is where we get comfort, beloved. We, we see our trials, we see our tribulations. We look at Christ, we can consider him and all that he's going through. And does that not aid us? Does not gird our hearts with a sense of encouragement that our Savior suffered on our behalf, and yet he rejoiced. We suffer often as a consequence of our own sin, certainly because of the curse at large. Christ never brought any of that. He had no guilt whatsoever, yet he still rejoiced on that with the imputation of the curse upon him. He prayed without ceasing. In everything he gave thanks this, this is how he lived. In fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 10 just for a second. Luke 10. You can see Paul's exhortations all come together in a little text here in Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 21. Now remember, Paul says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. What do we find in the Lord Jesus Christ? Luke 10, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Thou hast hid these things from the wide and prudent, hast revealed them unto babes, for even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. See that? See the, the various aspects that are going on there? What is he doing? He's praying. Pray without ceasing. He is praying. Rejoice evermore. What's he doing? He rejoiced in spirit. And he is to give thanks. 
I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Christ lived it out. He lived out the very thing Paul is driving home here. This is how you are to approach life. These are the exercises you are to give yourself to. Here is the instruction, and this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is indicating by Paul saying that this is the will of God, he is saying this, this has to be taking place. There's no avoiding this. This this must be existing in your life in some form. Not to the fullest degree. Not to a perfect degree. But to some degree there must be joy, prayer, giving thanks in your life because this is the will of God. Those in union with Christ receive this instruction. This is the will of God for you. Christ lived it out. Bearing unimaginable pressures. And this is the will of God for you. (laughs) Not only the didactic expression, but the doxological expression. The expressions that show there should be progress also found then in verses 23 and 24. This is more doxological. It's not didactical. It's not the, the direct teaching, but it's doxological because you can see even in how these verses read. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. These verses are as the verses that end chapter 3. You remember when we looked at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3, now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. We said then that this is in the optative mood. Optative move, mood. And the, the idea there is that it's both going to God as well as instruction for men. And so the doxologies are often written in this mood. It's expressing this. And you can see even in the translation of the authorized version that you have in italics, I pray God. The translators are showing that the expression of verses 23 and 24 are also a desire. They are the form of a wish, just like the end of chapter 3. But it doesn't come across clearly because in one sense you're wondering, is he saying this to the church or is he praying this to God? But the truth is it's both, like a doxology. And so that's why the translators put in, and I pray God, because they're, they're emphasizing the aspect that this is also going to God. And so in this doxological expression of progress, you can see that the heart of what the desire is from Paul, the very God of peace, the God of peace, let's think of the context, what I've been saying. Here's a church in tribulation. Here's a church under trial. Here's a church that is feeling the the, the burning of the persecution of the world. Here's a church that's feeling the effects of a fallen world, struggling with it. Anxieties come into their mind and heart. What do they need? They need peace. And Paul reminds them again, the very God of peace. The source of peace is not in the world. It's my peace, Jesus says, I give unto you. He says, I'm giving peace to you. The God of peace sanctify you wholly. 
sanctify, set you apart, purge you, cleanse you, the whole part of you, all of you, which is emphasized then when he says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This text often is used to get into the whole discussion of the nature of humanity, bipartite, tripartite, not going to deal with that this morning. The apostle is saying here, the progress, what we understand as the doctrine of sanctification, is something he brings as a prayer before God, as worship before the Lord, and his desire for the people of God, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. This is the longing of his heart. He had been trying to help in this, hadn't he? I mean, from the start of chapter 4, through to the end of the, the letter, really, there's constant driving home exhortations. Beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you. And he continues then to apply various aspects of things that he's trying to drive home to help them live. And he sees himself as an instrument in their sanctification. But this is the great desire the Lord has for them. That they would be making progress, being sanctified. As he said in chapter 4 verse 3, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is the will of God. That's putting the positive and the negative rather. Dealing with fornication, abstaining from fornication, staying away from these things. In the positive, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, these are the positive things to do to make progress. Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. Not the things you should avoid, the things you should give yourself to. Now the question we come to before we close is, who is involved and who is responsible for me to make progress? Is it the Lord or is it me? Paul is praying to God, but he's also saying it to the church. Does he expect God to sanctify them, to help them make progress? Or does he expect them to do it? Which is it? If you read through the Old Testament, there are times when the Lord said to his people Israel, such as Leviticus 11.44, Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy. You shall sanctify yourselves. Here's what you're to do. Do it. But at other times we read, such as Exodus 31, verse 13, I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. A wonderful text. So which is it? Does Paul expect that God will help them? Absolutely. 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 That's why he's praying. That's why he's not praying to God for God to do something that's not God's responsibility. He's praying to God because he believes that they need divine help. And he brings the matter before God because he is the Lord that doth sanctify you. He does this work. He will make it come to pass. He will, in other words, be sure to do what you need within your life. Is that not what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 13? It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
God's working in you. Paul lifts up there for his prayer to God. I want this church to make progress. Oh, that the God of peace would sanctify you wholly. I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His mind goes to that ultimate occasion when the sanctifying progress and experience ends and it makes way for glorification. Every believer living should always anticipate the possibility that they will see Christ return. And so that's where he draws their minds to. That should you be living when Christ comes, you're preserved blameless. That your life is above reproach. That there's nothing obvious that contradicts Christian testimony. Preserved blameless. For such a task, he comes before God. Do you pray about your sanctification? Do you? You are when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. That's what you're praying. (laughs) Deliver us from evil, Lord. Keep us from evil. Preserve us. Cause us to make progress. Help us to be kept pure. Sanctify us wholly. At the same time, there's no point in praying, deliver us from evil, and then getting up from prayer and walking right into it. Putting yourself in a position that you know that you're, you're rebelling against, you're, going, you're contradicting the very thing you're praying for, wouldn't seem to make much sense at all. Would the believer do that? No. And that's why there is a form of synergy that is going on. And I want to be careful there because everything goes back to the Lord. All, all glory goes back to Him. We are nothing but what He makes us to be. Paul makes that plain. It's all by the grace of God that we accomplish and do whatever He enables us to do for the glory of God. But, but there is, there is this, this pulling together that, that such is the renewal of your will. Where there's a genuine transformation, there will be a willingness, yea, a desire to obey God. Otherwise, all the exhortations given from chapter 4 onwards are pointless. Their significance is in the understanding that the redeemed of God have been given new wills whereby they are on a path of transformation and renovation by the Spirit of God. This this progress is... It is not something that we can be without. When you were born of the Spirit, when the Holy Ghost came and put life in you, sanctification began immediately, expressed in two exercises, faith and repentance. That's the beginning of sanctification. It is a sanctified heart that looks to Christ and rests there. And it is a sanctified heart that understands its own sin and turns from that. The beginnings of life, when we look and analyze what God does in the life of a sinner, it is from the moment 
of the new birth, they express sanctification. But it continues on. Sanctify you wholly. Paul, why is it important? Why? Because this is the whole end. Read Ephesians 1. Chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world that ye should be holy. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. The whole purpose of your, your election in Christ is to make you holy. So what is the will of God for your life, young people? I've pointed this out before. Let me drive it home. What is the will of God for your life? Pastor, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Here it is. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's positive. Negatively, we've looked at it. Chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. You should abstain from fornication. There are certain things you shouldn't do. Not in the lust of concupiscence, verse 5, and defrauding your brother, verse 6. Those are the negative. There are certain things you shouldn't do. And there are certain things you ought to do. And this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Are you making progress, believer? Are you? Has 2019 been a year of progress? I know it's hard. I look, <laughs> I look at my own heart. Have you made progress? Sometimes it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to evaluate, especially if you've been on the road long enough. To really evaluate, am I still making progress? But this is the heart of the apostle. This is the heart of Christ. Christian, you've been on the road decades. Keep going forward. Keep going forward. But I, I struggle. I, I'm not as strong as, I'm, as I used to be. I can't do the things. Look, your sanctification is not so tied to active service and ministry as you perhaps think. Your likeness to Christ can be expressed under the tremendous trial and suffering where there's no apparent ministry. But there's a holiness being emanated from your life. A likeness to Christ under the crushing weight of trials. This is the will of God. Yes. The chief end is not service in the way that we first think of it. The chief end is sanctification. His likeness to Jesus Christ. And whether you are in the first throes of youth with all your energy and vitality or whether you're crippled and unable to do anything in beds of sickness, this is the will of God. This is the path for progress. These are the exercises, beloved. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. To help you walk in the Spirit, 
Don't despise the teaching you receive. Test it. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from what's not. And as you advance, God will sanctify you and preserve you blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you. You see it? Faithful is he. God's not going to fail in his involvement in this work. So we rest there. Lord, you're going to do this. You turn your eyes to him. Make it come to pass. Make it a reality in my life. May the Lord grant it. Let's bow together in prayer. Trials are very real, beloved. I understand that. But how you respond to them is so critical. Don't give yourself a pass. Don't leave this kind of response to a form of Christianity that is not for you. You think, well, that's for, that's maybe for the, the leaders or that's for some other type of Christian. I could never do this. Look, if God wasn't helping you, I would say you're right. You'll never do it. But the arm of omnipotence is actively working to aid you and help you and support you and move you in this way. Seek for his help and his favor. It may surprise you what grace he will bestow. Our God, help us. We need help. I cry, Lord, that thou wilt be pleased to be merciful to us amidst all the trials of life. As much as this time of the year may be a season of merriment. It can be a great season of trial. And we think of so many reasons why hearts would be cast down at the present time. And yet thy word has come, a fitting word. We pray that thou wilt give much grace in the receiving of it. Whatever is ahead for us in the year to come, if it pleases Thee to bring us into that year, we pray that whatever is accomplished, that we would be more and more sanctified and made like unto Christ. Hear our prayers. And the very God of peace, sanctify You holy. Your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Amen.